If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Cycles of American Political Thought. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. And by LegalZoom, a way for regular people to confidently navigate the legal system. If you need help with incorporation, trademarks, last wills, living trusts, and more, don't let legal hurdles become an excuse. Go to LegalZoom.com today and enter amicus in the referral box for additional savings. That's LegalZoom.com, promo code amicus. And by FreshBooks, the super simple invoicing solution designed to help lawyers, consultants, and freelancers be organized, save time, and get paid faster. Creating and sending invoices, managing your expenses, and tracking your billable hours is about to get a whole lot easier. Go to FreshBooks.com slash amicus for your free 30-day trial. That's FreshBooks.com slash amicus. Hello and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the justices who interpret it. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. Now, over the summer, an awful lot of you wrote in to ask that we please, please profile some of the justices themselves. Talk about their stories, their biographies, and ways that make them come alive beyond just their opinions and the things that they write and say on the bench. So this week, we thought we'd oblige by interviewing Linda Hirschman, a friend of Slate and the author of a new book, Sisters-in-Law, How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg Went to the Supreme Court and Changed the World. Sisters-in-Law just came out a few weeks ago, so we invited Linda into the studio to talk about these two pioneering women and what the role of gender really is at the Supreme Court. Now, this is a subject I've thought and written about so much myself, so it gives me huge pleasure to welcome Linda Hirschman to Amicus. Thank you so very much for having me. Now, I think that one of the reasons this book is so intriguing, it's a joint biography of O'Connor and Ginsburg, the first two women at the U.S. Supreme Court. Now there are four women, but this is really, I think, through the lens of looking at the two of them and their relationship. And obviously, it's so tempting to talk about how different they are, right? We have a, a, a Republican cowgirl who grows up in the plains of Arizona, appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981, and then this wonky Brooklyn intellectual, you 
know, child of Jewish parents who's appointed by Bill Clinton in 1993. And yet your contention is they're more alike than not. I argue that they're more alike than not because their characters were very similar. They both came to the belief that they were entitled to govern, which is not a common thing for women in 1930s and 40s to think. And believing that they were entitled to govern, they did not have a Cinderella syndrome. At no point did they think they were not entitled to be where they were and might get caught and turned into a pumpkin. When people pressed them to admit that they were inferior, they took offense. And when they took offense, they picked their battles. So sometimes they uh, resisted at that time, and sometimes they took their revenge cold, and they waited. And finally, uh, if they couldn't ever get even, they just uh, played deaf. These are very profound characteristics, and it was one of the discoveries that I made when I wrote the book, how similar they were. So I want to talk right from the beginning about this question that threads through the book, Linda, this idea of do women judge differently? And certainly you end on this quotation of, of all people from Sonia Sotomayor, then appeals court judge Sonia Sotomayor, who says, probably afterwards to her regret, Sometimes a wise old man and a wise Latina woman will come to different conclusions based on their experience. And this goes on to become a way of talking about this very fraught question of what do you do with the argument that women think differently than men, they judge differently than men, uh, except that they're as worthy of being on the bench as men. And it seems like this tension is something that both O'Connor and Ginsburg are both willing to embrace at times and also really terrified of. Right. It's so interesting to see how ambivalent they both were about this subject during their entire careers, although at the end, when Sonia Sotomayor was taking so much grief for that statement, Ruth Bader Ginsburg came to her defense and said she thought, in fact, that women did uh, make decisions differently. I would say I don't contend that women think differently, okay? I don't think that women reason in a different voice. My conclusion from writing this book is that women bring to judging, as men do, their life experiences. And as a result of having had life experiences, they see things in the cases and in the disputes differently than people who have not had that life experience. So when women's life experiences begin to more resemble men's life experiences, then the differences in what they bring to the party will diminish. But while women like Ruth and Sandra, who grew up in very discriminatory and difficult times, are sitting on the bench, they will understand what it's like to be a woman. And I think that's valuable. And I don't think it's dangerous. And that's what Sotomayor meant when she said, a wise Latina woman might reach a different conclusion. Given the wealth of her experience, that's what that quotation is. And I don't think she walked away from it. I think that she astutely distanced herself from it until she was confirmed. But now I see it in her decisions and in her beautiful autobiography quite graphically. 
And and we should probably point out that the implication that when a woman says, hey, women might come to different conclusions or women's judgments may be informed by different experiences, that's always seen as bias, right? That's always seen as some form of female-specific mental illness, whereas right. the <laughs> idea that men uh, come to different conclusions because of their experiences means that they are judicious and uh, impartial, right? Well, right. So the question always is, does the fish see the water it swims in? So white men are the norm. So their experiences and attitudes are considered to be the norm for all humanity. But one of the many wonderful things that the book reveals, I think, at length is that uh, the two women who came to the court brought their different experiences and that the white male experience, in fact, was not the norm. And you're talking about half the population of the country. So when important decisions are being made about their lives and about the country, then it's really great that people who have had the experiences that half the country has had are making the decisions. I want to play an audio clip for you from Safford versus Redding. This was a 2009 case that didn't seem to have all that much to do uh, with gender. It was about a teenage girl who was strip searched in her Arizona school. They were looking for drugs. Um, And it seems to be deeply connected to some of the things we're talking about, which is these issues of female experience, not the female brain, but what your experience as a girl teaches you when you're sitting on a bench hearing a case like this. So we're going to listen to audio from Oral Argument. Uh, which played out a little bit like Porky's, a lot of towel slapping and jocular ha-haing by the males. And the first thing you're going to hear is Justice Stephen Breyer uh, with the little towel slapping, and then uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg reacting to uh, a situation that she thought, if you were a woman, you might not think is so funny. the hypothetical. I'm trying to work out here because I'm not certain. Right. I'm trying to work out. Why is this a major thing to say strip down to your underclothes, which children do when they change for gym? They, they do fairly frequently, not too, you know, and there are only two women there. Uh, is it, how bad is this? Underclothes. Now that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm asking you because I don't know. Right. Mr. Wolf, one thing should be clarified. I don't think there's any dispute. What was done in the case of both of these girls, it wasn't just that they were stripped to their underwear. They were asked to shake their bra out, to, uh, to shake, stretch the, the top of their pants and shake that out. There's no dispute, factual dispute about that, is there? There is none at all. Well, I thought there was, because I thought on page 135 of the record, the officials said they didn't see her naked. And so I thought that there no, was. There was no dispute that they asked her to shake her pants and her bra. Nobody said that they touched, the school officials didn't touch her. That's a given. But they did ask her to shake out her underwear. That's right, Justice Ginsburg. Everybody Linda, talk a little bit about why that moment is significant for you and what it tells you about uh, Ginsburg, who at that moment was sitting as the only woman on the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg brought to that argument her experience of being a female 
And because of that experience, she knew how it would have felt to a 13-year-old girl to be stripped to her underwear and then asked to pull it away from her body and shake it out. And Breyer, who was a liberal judge and, you know, not normally associated with attitudes toward women, um, was bringing to the argument his happy experience in the locker room at his school. Um, And there was more discussion between the justices. You could hear the laughter in the background in that clip. There was more discussion among the justices about what might have been in Justice Breyer's underwear, and they were really yucking it up. And Ginsburg, I think this is so important. The the vote in the Savannah Redding case was not close. So this is not about how the vote went. This is about how the Supreme Court of the United States discusses the experience of being a young girl in a public school. And if Ginsburg hadn't been there, it would have gone by without anyone protesting and saying, you can't frame the scene that way. In a minute, I want to talk about how these two women fit into the larger history of the women's movement. But first, I want to say a few words about one of our sponsors today. Like most of you who are listening to this podcast, I love to learn particularly about history just for the pure pleasure of it. And that's why I've become a huge fan of the great courses. I particularly enjoyed Cycles of American Political Thought, one of the great courses series, which tells you not just about what happened to create America, and not just who made it happen, but the actual thinking, the philosophy behind some of the great, great moments in American history. This is a course that is really all about the intersection between political thought and events and how it made America as it is today. And I particularly want to commend to you the lecture, if you're listening to this show, about the women's movement, suffrage, and the passage of the 19th Amendment. The Great Courses celebrating their 25th anniversary has over 500 courses in all sorts of subjects from law, religion, history, science, and it's available in both audio and video formats. Now, The Great Courses has created a special limited-time offer for all of our Amicus listeners. If you order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Cycles of American Political Thought, you can get them at up to 80% off the original price. Order today, go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. Linda, talk a little bit about the barriers that were faced by both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor, because it seems in some sense like we're talking about ancient history when you hear about women who can't get a clerkship or have to hide their pregnancies. So can you remind us a little bit about, even though this was not that long ago, what their lives were like? So there was no Civil Rights Act when they got out of law school. And there were, of course, no cases saying that the 14th Amendment applies equally to men and women because Ruth Bader Ginsburg had not yet made that law. So they were completely unprotected, like gays and lesbians are in many states. Now, for example, there just simply were no laws that protected them. So law firms could legally say and did say, we won't hire you. You're a woman, as Gibson Dunn said to Justice O'Connor, our clients would never stand for it. And um, the social beliefs were also that this was a legitimate cultural position to hold, that women did not belong in the courtroom. Just in 1961, which was after both O'Connor and Ginsburg got out of 
law school, the Supreme Court, the liberal Supreme Court of the United States, the Warren Court, decided that women could be um, distanced from jury service because it was so harsh a world for women to be in the courtroom. So it was both legally and culturally normal. And and uh, women internalized these beliefs, and so they didn't fight it. So it was a very powerful system of exclusion. And I know that when I graduated from law school in 1969, even though it was at that point illegal, uh, law firms told me, even though I had been on law review and stuff, that they were not interested in hiring a woman. It was really not so long ago. So Ruth and Sandra faced these barriers. Sandra faced the explicit refusal to hire her by the time that Ginsburg got out of law school in 1959. um, The judges wouldn't hire her to be a clerk. So the Supreme Court justices wouldn't hire her and the circuit court judges wouldn't hire her to be a clerk. But she did get a job with Judge Palmieri, who was the lowest federal uh, level, the district court. And then the law firms in New York, liberal New York, were starting to take an occasional woman. So she got a summer job, but they did not offer her a permanent one. And and talk a little bit, Linda, if you would, about the ways in which these two women who pretty consistently saw doors shut in their faces and, uh, you know, really had to make their own paths, how it is that they were kind of different from all the other women who just said, okay, I'll go home and have some babies instead. What is it in their personalities that allowed them to say, you know, if someone puts a rock in my path, I'm just going to hang out a shingle and become a lawyer in a strip mall? Right. In the case of Justice O'Connor, she was raised as an only child for eight years. Her next sibling is eight years younger than she, on an isolated ranch in southeast Arizona. So there was only her and her parents on this very isolated ranch. And in the West, you kind of have to learn to take care of yourself and to do anything that comes along. And there was no uh, human power to waste. So they treated her as a player, even when she was a child. And when she got, many years later, she settled in Phoenix, she got into Western society which places a high premium on volunteering. Frontier societies place a high premium on volunteering. And so she was valued, even though the formal institutions like law firms did not value her. And she was treated like a son by her father, relentlessly demanding and willing to engage in intellectual conversation with her all the time. So she had no information. She was like a wild child. She had no information about what her proper role in society should be. Ginsburg um, was also an only child. Her sister died of meningitis when she was young, and she had a doting mother. And so there is some similarity there. Um, By the time Ginsburg got to Cornell, people were starting to think in more formal liberal terms. And Cornell was a very liberating place for women. I know this because I went there myself. Um, And uh, women went to class with men. It was the Penn and Cornell were the only schools in the Ivy League where that was the case. And her mentor treated her with enormous respect. 
The other thing about Ginsburg that you cannot forget is she's the smartest person in the world. And she put that laser-like mind to work on anything that was put in front of her. And her teachers meeting this amazingly brilliant girl and then young woman treated her as if she mattered. And yet I think it's important to point out, and you certainly do this in the book, that even when they became numbers one and two at the high court, they were never bosom buddies. They were never friends of the heart. I think you say they're not soul sisters. They're just sisters-in-law. But talk a little bit about how, despite that, they really did support each other because this is some of the really compelling material, I think, how these two women who, you know, from the ground up could not have been more different, managed to have each other's backs all those years. When Sandra Day O'Connor was put on the court, she said, it's okay to be the first, but I do not want to be the last. And I believe with perfect faith that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg arrived, O'Connor was so happy that the next one was this brilliant, disciplined, competent woman. So O'Connor didn't have to really help much to make Ginsburg a success. Insofar as she could help, she did help. And Ruth figured that out. She went to O'Connor early in her tenure when Justice Rehnquist assigned her a difficult and controversial case for her first opinion and asked O'Connor what she should do. And O'Connor said, just do it. And typical O'Connor, right? Just do it. And do it quickly, she said, letting Ginsburg in on the secret that Rehnquist wouldn't give her another maybe better opinion until she got the previous one in. Ginsburg said that O'Connor was the best big sister you could wish for. Do you know, Dahlia, that in the years when Ginsburg sat on the lower on the D.C. Circuit and O'Connor was on the Supreme Court, she took more clerks from Ginsburg's chambers than from anybody else's chambers? And that was an act of sisterly solidarity, or that was simply just deep respect for the kinds of folks that Ginsburg would have hired? So I asked one of the clerks who went from O'Connor to from Ginsburg to O'Connor that very question, and she said she interviewed me because Justice Ginsburg gave her word for me. So I think it was because O'Connor had respect for Ginsburg's judgment. I'm pleased to announce we have a new sponsor for this episode of Amicus. You shouldn't have to choose any old random lawyer who charges expensive hourly rates when you need legal help. But the legal system is so complicated. What other choices do you have when you need help with your business or you want to protect your family? Well, start with LegalZoom. They make it easy. For more than a decade, they've provided a way for regular people, you and me, to confidently navigate the legal system. LegalZoom's not a law firm, and that's how they provide such great value. They do not rely on charging you by the hour. Instead, you'll get transparent pricing and customer reviews so you know exactly what you're getting right up front. 
So if you need help with incorporation, LLCs, trademarks, last wills, living trusts, and more, LegalZoom is your smart choice. They've got the right people on hand to answer your questions. And if you need legal advice, their network of independent attorneys can provide the straightforward guidance you'll need in most states. Don't let legal hurdles become an excuse. Go to LegalZoom.com today to start building your own future the right way. To save even more, please enter Amicus in the referral box at checkout. That's LegalZoom.com. Promo code Amicus. Linda, you've written so extensively about feminism and women's issues for so long, and I wonder if you're as struck as I am. And again, I'm a a generation off a little bit um, because I graduated from law school and nobody told me I had to take dictation. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the extent to which both of these women in a lot of ways were very feminine, very uh, unruffling characters, both of them in different ways, but in deep and profound ways, uh, soothed the men around them and tried not to be alarming and often given the choice between being uh, a capital F feminist or a woman's liber uh, with capital W's and L's, chose to kind of go along and get along. Is that just a function of the times or was that what was necessary or is that just their natures? So they're sort of different in this regard, actually. Um, Justice O'Connor cultivated a lot of conventional womanly behaviors. She's a wonderful cook, for example. And uh, Justice Ginsburg doesn't cook at all. So Justice O'Connor had more superficially conventional female behaviors. Justice Ginsburg was the head of the Women's Rights Project of the ACLU starting in 1971, or two, rather. There was no way she could conceal that she was a women's liber with a capital W and a capital L. But she concentrated very hard on the rational and the analytic rather than the emotional and the emotive. And that made her more acceptable and an easier representative of a very radical movement because she if you read her speeches they're one case after another very careful very dry very analytic um the other thing that she had which i think Nina Totenberg said is she had this tiny little soft voice she could say the most radical things in that tiny little soft voice One of the people who was with her in the early 70s said she got away with things that nobody else got away with. If I could figure out how Ginsburg got away with it, I'd do it myself. So she never made a big fuss about the fact that she didn't want to be bothered cooking. She just didn't learn how to cook. Linda, my last question for you, you know, you talk in the book and it's so demonstrably clear that even though we had a Republican and a Democrat and a sort of country club uh, Westerner and a New York intelligentsia, that where the rubber hit the road, uh, these two women aligned themselves on gender issues more than on almost any other issues. Do you think that Ginsburg and O'Connor are surprised at how slow progress has been for women, at how 
even though on paper we have now had four women justices, and certainly, as you point out, uh, Justice Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor did not face anything like the barriers that O'Connor and Ginsburg faced. But do you think that these two pioneering women uh, look around at the country and say, oh, my God, I can't believe we're still having this fight? Or do you think they're more optimistic? I don't think that Justice O'Connor would ever say anything like that because she will not look back. And she is relentlessly optimistic. Um, she would just say, "Well, that's life. You you have." She says that that's life. You have to go on. You just have to go on. So I don't think she would say that. Justice Ginsburg also does what one of her clerks called "happy face acts," which is to make the situation look better than it is, because as a social activist, you want people to have hope and to bring their behavior into line with what you're saying. I think she would be pleased with the progress that we've made in the formal legal arena that she works in. She always knew that getting, for example, paid childbirth leave and uh, child care support. She says that in a very, very early speech. What we really need is a system of paid leave and child care. But that in America is not something that our 18th century constitution provides. So I think she always knew that once she did her great work, the cultural change would have to follow. And do you think, Linda, that what I'm calling not the Gilmore girls, but the Ginsburg girls, this generation of the notorious RBG, the young women who are coming up who suddenly are just smitten with her and giving this iconic status that is well-deserved, as you point out, um, so long overdue. But do you think that that's their way into this fight by kind of revering uh, Ginsburg and realizing that uh, the work she started is really only just a start and it's going to be incumbent on this next generation to finish it? Absolutely. I think that popular culture has moved much closer to political culture in the last 10 or 20 years. And the internet, which was the vehicle for turning Ruth Bader Ginsburg into this young person's idol, um, has played a huge role in that. So people are using... I mean, it's a, it's the John Stewart phenomenon, okay? People are using popular culture as a way of talking about politics. So the transformation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg into this internet meme is an example of that. And I think it's really healthy and wonderful that um, the energy and attention that's being given to popular culture is also being used as a vehicle for political change. I I do not want to see her reduced to a caricature on a T-shirt. This was a very, very serious, brilliant player. The dean of the University of Chicago Law School, Jeff Stone, told me in an interview, she is quite simply the most important woman lawyer in the history of the American Republic. 
So I am both really happy to be presenting her in all her serious and interesting glory in the book, and also that the young people who use the Internet are using it to make a political statement that they support her. That's a terrific note to end on. Linda Hirschman, her book, Sisters-in-Law, How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg Went to the Supreme Court and Changed the World, came out this month. Congratulations, Linda. Thank you so much for the tremendous work, and thank you for joining us this week on Amicus. Thank you for having me. If you're somebody who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky administrative tasks means having a lot more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you should give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, manage your expenses. Even if you're not a numbers person like me, you'd be shocked at how easy FreshBooks is to use. So for your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com amicus and enter amicus in the how did you hear about us section when you're signing up. And that's going to do it for this 25th, holy cow, 25th episode of Amicus. But we are sitting here refreshing our inbox to hear what you thought about this show and what you'd like to hear more of. Our email is amicus at slate.com. And thank you so much for all the letters over the summer. And our website is the same thing, but inside out. Slate.com slash amicus is where you'll find a permanent and shareable home for this podcast, as well as all of our past podcasts. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll also be able to read transcripts of all of our recent shows there. And if you're not, well, sign up for a free two-week trial at slate.com slash amethyst plus. A great big thank you, as always, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is produced. Our producer is Tony Field, and Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.